0: Hi, and welcome to Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We are committed to serving our community and the community abroad. We pray that the word you are about to hear will be a blessing to your life and that you allow the Holy Spirit to open your heart and receive what the Lord is speaking to you. How are you all doing? Okay. Praise God. All right. We're excited. We're together in the name of Jesus, we're learning and growing together, and our goal is to be more like Christ, that is our goal, to be conformed into his image. Let's pray as we continue Second Corinthians chapter 6. Lord, we thank you for your word, we pray that you would help us understand the things that you want to impart into us, God that we be changed more and more into your image, we be more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week we were dealing with Second Corinthians chapter 5. And for context, we're going to read the latter part of that chapter, and then we're going to go right into chapter 6. So Paul says, so we are ambassadors for Christ, Second Corinthians 5.20, as though God were pleading through us, We implore you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, connect the thought, we are ambassadors for Christ. He's talking about himself and the apostles that founded and ministered to the church, founded the church and ministered to it. And then in chapter six, sometimes, unfortunately, the chapters and verses break up the train of thought and hurts the way we interpret the Bible. And this is an example of that. So it should have never been chapter six. It should just be one flow here. So remember the thought. We are ambassadors to Christ as though God were pleading through us. Chapter six as workers together. You see how it connects? As work is together with God, we ask you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have listened to you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Look, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. So let's stop there for a minute. So Paul, as he shows that... Uh, His view of his own calling and those of the other apostles and ministers were ambassadorial. And as we talked about last week, an ambassador is someone who represents another kingdom or their own kingdom, actually. So a delegate from the U.S. to France is not representing themselves. They're representing the U.S. They're representing the power, the sovereignty, the might and the exclusive rights of the U.S. And when they are living in France, they actually have some kind of diplomatic immunity, so they're not even treated like a French citizen and prosecuted like others, even if, unfortunately, they break the law. They are treated with diplomatic status, which is a totally different animal than the way uh, a typical uh, crime would be prosecuted by an ordinary citizen of France. And so Paul is calling himself an ambassador. Everybody who represents Christ to one extent or another is an ambassador. So you don't have to just be an apostle. But in this context, he's talking about himself because he's trying to bring a correction to errors that are going on in the church. And I think he was emphasizing even more the fact that he's an ambassador because throughout this epistle, you could see that he's being accused by people. They're berating him. They're scandalizing him. They're belittling him. They're talking down on him, uh, about him. And, uh, and so, in a sense, he's trying to uh, focus on the fact that don't just look at me. Look at who I represent and look at who is giving me the authority to speak to you. Does that make sense? And so, of course, no matter how um, we look at a spiritual leader, we always have to look at who they represent more than just them, which means we have to be careful, too, about how we treat and talk about them because they're representing God's kingdom uh, in a sense where they're helping to bring leadership and oversight. Everybody, hopefully, will represent God's kingdom, not just spiritual leaders. And that has to do with... Your own uh, obedience to Christ and your willingness to represent Him in the way God wants you to. So he says, as workers together, after calling himself an ambassador, we ask you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So the, the gospel that he preached is all based on grace. We're not saved by our own goodness, we're not saved by our own works. We are saved uh, totally by the meritorial uh, righteousness of Christ's shed blood. And so when we have faith in him, we are forgiven, we are reconciled, we are adopted into the family of God, we are transferred from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son. We are seated with him in heavenly places as dual citizens of the earth and the kingdom. All these things transpire as soon as someone comes to Christ, it's amazing, but it's all done by grace. Grace, in one sentence, uh, many scholars will say it just means God's undeserved favor, God's unmerited favor. So He was saved by grace, not by works, lest someone can boast that they made it to heaven or they're uh, walking with God on the earth because they're good. No, nobody is good. There is none good, none righteous All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is why we have to be careful when we judge other people, right? Okay, so he said, don't receive this gospel, this good news, this grace in vain. Now, how could you receive it in vain? Well, you could try to earn your way to heaven. As the book of Galatians teaches, you're actually um, ignoring what Christ did and trampling on him when we try to earn God's love by good works, when we try to approach him by good works, and when we try to make it to heaven, and when we try to have eternal life by our own goodness. So we are receiving it in vain because we're disannulling, uh, even as Paul said to the Galatians, if you get circumcised to be saved, you are now negating what Christ did for you. He was warning the Jews, uh, he was warning The uh, Christians who are being proselytized by Judaizers and Galatians and then in Hebrews don't even go back to the Old Testament sacrifices because what you're doing is trampling on the blood of Christ. There's only one way to be saved, and it's not through works, not through sacrifices, not through rituals, not through religion. It is only through Christ alone. Someone say, "Christ Christ alone. Christ alone do I stand. He is the rock that we stand on, not our own goodness. And so we receive the grace of God in vain, meaning we come to Christ, initially we're saved, but then after that we try to earn our way. That's receiving it in vain. It's hindering our growth. Also receiving it in vain also also means that we are disobeying him. We are not allowing him to lead us. We're not pouring over his word, we're not... Uh, concerned about what his will is for our life, and we're deliberately disobeying very simple commandments, like you know, being in fellowship in the church and uh, spending time with God and, and obeying the promptings of His Spirit, things like that. So there's a lot we could say about what it means to uh, receive the grace of God in vain. But just I'll end this section with this: even though we're saved by grace. It is up to us. It's our will, our free will that has to coincide and cooperate with his grace for it to work. He doesn't make robots. He doesn't force us to follow him. You don't want to follow him, you won't. You could say that's good news or bad news. If you don't want to follow him, that's good news. You go on your own, do your own thing. But It's bad news because of what the outcome is going to be, right? All right, and then he now makes his case that it's grace by which we're saved, and because of that, don't take advantage of it, don't take it for granted. Because it's grace, then he says, and he's quoting Isaiah I think it's 49 in an acceptable time. I have listened to you and in the day of salvation, I have helped you look now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Exciting. He said that everything the prophets prophesied about, we're living in it. Jesus said to um, the disciples, many kings and prophets, Desire to see what you see and never saw it. Abraham, looked for this day, John 8 says, but he never saw it. But he's glad in heaven looking at it. And so what we have today is what Abraham, what Isaac, what Moses, what Joshua, what Ezekiel, Isaiah, what Hosea, what Zechariah, Zephaniah, Micah, all of these prophets, Elijah, all of them, prophesied and understood that there was a day that all of them had spoken of. Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, one day there's a prophet coming. And listen to his words. He knew that he wasn't the prophet, he was a prophet. And we're living in this day, and Paul calls it the day of salvation. And Jesus, when he first started preaching, He inaugurated his first advent or his first coming by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has gifted me with the ability to bring good news to the poor and to release those in bondage. But then he said, after bringing out all of these aspects of the gospel, that he heals brokenhearted, sets captives free, sets at liberty those who are bruised. Then he says, and to proclaim, I love this, the year of the, the Lord's favor. The year, in this sense, is an epoch of time that we're still living in 2,000 years later that shows that we're able to receive God's grace, that we're able to enter into his favor if we choose to. And that was actually alluding to Leviticus chapter 25 when... God talked about the year of jubilee when every man's burdens would be lifted off him. Every 50 years, every debt would be forgiven. All your property would be returned. And you would have a fresh start, a day of new beginnings. And what Jesus was saying, this is the year of God's favor. He was alluding back to what Leviticus 25 was basically pointing to in fullness. Jesus is the jubilee. He is the good news. And Paul, building upon that, saying now we're in the year, the day of salvation. Isn't that amazing? This is good news. And those of us who reject that and reject the meritorial work of Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and rising from the dead three days later, those of us who reject that are receiving it in vain, or those who reject it and never came to Christ, never received it to begin with. So, Paul builds upon the Old Testament, and that's why it's important we read the whole Bible, so we have a fullness of understanding of everything, how the Bible is so supernatural written by 40 authors over a period of 1,600 years. Most of them didn't know each other. They came from various geographic regions, economic backgrounds, even some of them ethnic differences. And in spite of their sociological, physiological, and geographic, and historical differences, they all said basically the same thing. This is a supernatural book. Incredible. And that's why I love reading it so much. And so what Paul is doing is he's kind of like building a panoramic view based on the Old Testament scriptures of where we're at now. Man, I hope you understand the grace of God that we're walking in. Abraham never even saw what we see. Jesus said that John the Baptist, it's recorded in Matthew 11, was the greatest prophet to ever be born of woman amazing he's greater than elijah and moses it's hard for me to fathom that because he only had like a year ministry but he said but he that is least in the kingdom of god in this new epoch this new grace this new jubilee in the gospel year of salvation he that is in this time is greater than john greater than anything the Old Testament prophets have. Why? Because the benefits that we have and our rights we have as citizens of the kingdom are greater than anything the Old Testament ever saw. They long to see what we see, but never saw it. Are you catching this? This is, I I mean, man, I was incredibly intellectual before I came to Christ, studied everything you could imagine. It took me three years to finally acquiesce to God. And I'll tell you, I, I'm still blown away with this Bible. Man, I how everything is pieced together, integrated together, weaved together. And it makes so much sense. It has to be supernatural. No way a man could come up with this stuff. And then he says, in light of this day of salvation, in light of the fact I'm an ambassador, in light of the fact I'm a co-worker together with God, we, so he had a team, it wasn't just him, We give no offense in anything that our service may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves, or we get your approval as servants of Christ. And then he gets into what commended him. And so before I get to that, he lived a life so that he would not give unnecessary offense. Now, there is an offense with the cross. I can't help it. I believe that Jesus died, that he rose, that he's alive right now. And if that offends you, I can't help it. I love you. I want you to believe it. I'll never apologize for being a Christian or a Christ follower. I mean, the number one question you have to ask yourself is, where's the body? Where's the body? He rose from the dead. That's what got me. I mean, try to figure out where the body is. (laughs) And even the Uh, People like Jordan Peterson, which I think is now a believer, and others, I mean, they investigate. They can't figure it out. Nobody knows what happened to their body. And I'm not preaching an apologetic message. But I tell you, man, (laughs) I came to Christ in spite of my intellectual aversion and pride because the evidence is so overwhelming. And then after the evidence, and I came to Christ... Now, I don't even care about the evidence or anything else anymore because he's in me. I have his power, his spirit. It would be like trying to prove that the pulpit is here. I mean, that's a foolish thing. Maybe if you live in another country and didn't see it, I would have to try to prove it. But in my mind, even though I study apologetics, it's not even an issue anymore. Like the pulpit is here. He's in me. Incredible presence of God, I feel every day. He walks with me. He talks with me. He prophesies through me. I see things in other people's lives. Miracles have taken place. People have had miracles in my life. Said things that God only could tell them to me. I mean, it's all one body, right? It doesn't make it. It's impossible to me how this gospel is not true. This overwhelming experience of forty-four years of walking with Christ—it's just incredible. And so Paul is saying, we give no offense in anything. I don't want everything Christ has done to be mocked because I live like a knucklehead. Because I do stupid things. We who represent Christ need to understand that people could turn away from God because of us, not because of Jesus. Because we are the gospel they see. We are the life they see. That's what Paul's saying. We don't want to give offense in anything. And of course, some of the things that we preach might be unnecessary. Some Even the rules and regulations in some churches could be an offense. As I remember ministering in this community in the beginning days, I don't know how it is now, but there was so much legalism in the church, a woman couldn't wear pants or makeup and a man had to come with a suit and a tie I mean there are people who wouldn't even be allowed in some churches but it was because of ignorance and other things and I, I don't see that stuff anymore but it is possible there are rules and regulations that are stupid I mean it has nothing to do with Jesus that's why I tell people I'm not religious I'm still the crazy man I always was except I learned how to be crazy for God instead of Acting in ways that displease him. See, Christ never diminishes our humanity. I still have the same personality. I still have a lot of fun. I still have a lot of things I enjoy doing, but I could do things with God's smile and don't have to do things that hurt him and grieve the spirit, right? So I have more liberty now than I did before I knew Christ. I love it. I love living this life. And so. Sometimes churches could put offenses on people. I remember, even in our church, I I don't remember who did it. Hopefully they're not here, but but I don't think they are. But uh, one time a young man came in with a hat on and one of the ushers took the hat off him. (laughs) Told him to remove his hat and then we had to correct him, right? I mean, this is like maybe 15, 20 years ago. So there are things that are foolish that we don't have to do as a church, right? Because we could be a stumbling block. But individually, Paul's saying, I don't want to be a stumbling block. And so he says, we commend ourselves as servants of God. Now, how does he commend himself? By wearing bling? By having the best clothes? By having the greatest, bountiful life? This is interesting. Watch how he commends himself or how he shows his sincerity. others we commend ourselves as servants of God in much patience do you know that having supernatural patience is a gift the things that he went through and he still kept on going without quitting to me the greatest miracle is when we exhibit patience towards one another and have unity in the church with all diverse personalities, agendas, experiences, lifestyles, uh, backgrounds, presuppositions, uh, baggage that we bring. Everybody here has an invisible person sitting next to them. Your mama, your dad, your girlfriend, someone who broke your heart, someone who divorced you, whatever, right? All of us coming together in unity and love. Man, that's a miracle, isn't it? That's another proof that Jesus really did rise because the church has been going strong for 2,000 years with billions of followers. Only God could have done that. What the Roman Empire tried to do through force and emperor worship, Jesus did, which was assigned to the principalities and powers of his wisdom, according to Ephesians 3.10. So he says, in all things we commend ourselves. I love this. What a difference from the American enterprise Even the gospel enterprise a lot of times with the prosperity preaching. What a difference from the value system of what Americans deem as success. This is his view of success. This is his view of what shows and proves he's a servant of God. And much patience in affliction. That's a thing we don't want to hear. Afflictions in necessities. That means he doesn't have everything he needs all the time in distress man there was a lot of pressure on that boy in stripes stripes had nothing to do with putting a sign on your face or i mean on your clothes it had to do with someone taking a whip and scourging his back in imprisonments in tumults tumults were riots that broke out wherever he went in labors in sleeplessness in hunger Wow. By purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness. Everything he endured. Kind of like was a greater sign that he was walking in apostolicity. than the miracles he performed. Are you hearing what I'm saying? God allows distress and challenges to separate the wheat from the chaff from true believers to fake believers if everything was always going to be good then everybody would be a christian and there would be no test of your faith but the bible says the testing of our faith produces patience which gives us perfection and maturity and character not perfection meaning sinlessness meaning maturity so paul was appealing to them. And he shouldn't have been in this situation. Look at everything I've gone through and look what I'm still going through and I'm still loving you and I'm still preaching and I'm still administering to you with patience. you think that that's a sign that God is with me or not? Because I couldn't have done this in my own strength, basically. So he's commending himself as what? A co-laborer with God. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 20. An ambassador... He is now authenticating that by the patience and the love that he has for the church in spite of all of the environmental pressure and difficulties. And wait till you get to chapter 11 and see what some of these things are that he spells out. Chapter 11, verse 17 to 35. Woo! Even one of those things, he was shipwrecked like two or three times, spent a day in the open sea. One of those things would be traumatizing He had that as one of many instances that came against him where the enemy, as a messenger of death, tried to stop the gospel, but never stopped him. Wow. You are immortal until your assignment is finished if you're obeying Christ. Man. But now the first half is is some of the struggles and some of the things he goes through. But look at the second half. Wow, this balances it out. By the word of truth, I'm commended by the word that I'm preaching. By the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. He explains what that is more in Ephesians 6, verse 10 to 17. By honor and dishonor, meaning sometimes people are saying bad things about him, or people disrespect him because he left his religious elite of being a Pharisee And he became a lowly preacher who was sometimes homeless and he had dishonor amongst his fellow peers in Judaism that used to walk with him. By evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, they were complaining that he was deceiving people by preaching Jesus rose from the dead. But yet what he was saying was true, as unknown, meaning he lost his prestige and yet well known. He was known in hell and in heaven. Well known where it mattered most. The enemy feared him. and God rejoiced with his life of obedience. As dying, he always was given over to death. We read that in Second Corinthians 4. Always willing to do whatever it took for Christ, even for men, his physical death. As dying and look... We still live as punished, but not killed as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing as poor, yet making many rich as having nothing yet possessing all things. How is that possible? Because in Christ, you're complete no matter what you lack in the world. He is everything. Once you find him, you find life, you find meaning. I remember I've said this many times as a professional musician coming home after all the gigs and jams and throngs of people and girlfriends and all the stuff, the parties. Come home, filled with emptiness, looking at the stars in the sky, saying, there's got to be more than this. I'm happy, but it only lasts a moment. I'm empty most of the time. And after I found Christ, I found peace that passes understanding, passes my circumstances, passes my turmoil, my pain. I still have pain and still have turmoil at times but inside that turmoil is that joy of Christ that keeps me going no matter what people do to me, no matter what my experiences are, even my own failures, because nobody's got it together, 100%. And so Christ becomes everything. And then verse 11, he says, "Oh Corinthians, look at how personal, how passionate. This is not religion, this is relationship, this is intimacy, this is emotional, human connection. This is being real with people. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken frankly to you. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, meaning my heart is open to you, but you're restrained in your affections to me. It hurt him. You ever see situations where you know there's something up with somebody? They're not open anymore. They're not as friendly. They're not uh, being personal with you. They're just kind of tolerating you. That's what Paul sensed here. You're restrained. Something's holding back your affections. And it bothered him not because he needed to be loved, but because he was their spiritual leader and it hurt their ability to receive from him. He was more concerned with their growth in Christ than about winning a popularity contest. you hear what I'm saying? And when people slander the spiritual leaders that are feeding the people, that are being sincere and loving and and helping, and when they're attacked, it hurts the ability for the people in the church to receive God's light and truth from them. That's why we have to be so careful what we say and what we pass on as news. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken frankly, we are honest, we're transparent, we're sincere, our heart is open, but you're, you're restrained. Can you feel the pain? In return, I speak as to my own children. Be open. Love them as his own children. And Now he's setting them up for some strong words of admonition. I love it. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What agreement has Christ with Belial? What part has he who believes with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live in them and I will walk in them and I will be their God and they will be my people. It's quoting Leviticus 16, I'm sorry, 26, 12. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Then again, here's another problem. They separated chapter 7 and 6 while he was in the middle of a thought. So I'm going to finish that. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, was he saying to them not to be with unsaved people? No, that's not what he was saying. He actually said in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm not saying you should remove yourself from the world. We had to read chapter 7, verse 1, because it gives us a hint of what he's referring to. Let us cleanse ourselves from filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And then it had to do with idols and other things. Corinth was one of the most immoral, perhaps the most immoral city in the Roman Empire, filled with temple prostitutes, filled with corruption and stuff that would make your hair stand up. Well, maybe not today. I don't know. And if you didn't have hair, I don't know. i got to be careful. But... (laughs) I almost said something that would have got me thrown off the internet. But uh, he was talking about several things here. First of all, he's saying don't, don't be unequally yoked. He didn't say not to be yoked. He said unequally, meaning don't make some kind of lifestyle commitment to people who have different values. And in their day, maybe they were worshiping idols. Maybe they're involved in some kind of temple prostitution or lifestyles that were incredibly immoral or against the uh, word of God. And, uh, and he's talking about being unequally yoked. And I already read what he said. I don't want to read the whole thing. So how would we apply that today? Again, he's not talking about not being with unsaved people. I mean, I love being with people who aren't in church. I love being with people who have different faith experiences. I love being with people that are, have never darkened the doors of a church, don't know Christ, or maybe might have brought, were brought up in the church at some point. And I'm regularly in contact with people. I used to do it constantly with jams. We would have here once a month with some of the top musicians in the city. And now I do it by training and different things. Physical training, and uh, I absolutely love it. I mean, there's one one place where I train, and they call me Pastor Joe in front of a whole room of people—thirty people, twenty people. Sometimes we're all training together, and people know I'm a pastor. They come up to me. Several have said, "Man, I want to visit your church." Right? I love it. But so Paul isn't saying don't be with unsaved people but unequally yoked in a contemporary application could be don't go into business with someone who has a different value system, right? It might be somebody who, you know, wants to cheat the government, be con artist or whatever, and you, you have Christian values or you want to use some of your money for the good of the kingdom and they say, what, are you kidding me? I mean, you're looking for a huge problem if your value system is totally different from somebody you want to go into partnership with. How about who you're going to choose as a spouse? That's why you need marriage counseling before you get married. Right? I mean, what if your spouse-to-be doesn't want to have children and you want to have five? What if they worship another God and want to raise the kids in this faith and you want to raise it in Christianity? I mean, you could go on and on. You could... Just continue on the line. Or what about your closest friends, the people you receive life from and advice from, the confidants, the people you hang out the most? Are they following Christ? Are they adding to your assignment and your faith level? It's one thing to be with people, to minister to them and to love them, but is this your inner circle that gives you life and influence and guides and shapes your worldview? Woo! There's a difference there. See, it's not saying don't be yoked. In other words, you could have friends who don't know the Lord. Unequally means that it's something that is balancing, tipping the scales towards another worldview, another gospel. Are you hearing me? So there's a big difference there. Jesus hung out with sinners. So if this had to do with don't be with unbelievers, Jesus would have violated that already, right? All of us were unbelievers for that matter. (laughs) Then why even preach to them, right? No, it is absolutely not talking about that. It's talking about, I mean, Jesus was with quote-unquote sinners to the Jews in those days. That had to do with those who were not walking in the covenant. And, and, you know, he would hang out with people who were not living according to the Jewish law. So they were called sinners. So he said that. But notice, he was with them, but not of them. They did not influence him. They did not shape him. But he shaped their thinking and showed that God loves them, accepts them. In spite of how they were, he was a light in darkness. Some Christians hang out with knuckleheads, and the darkness overshadows the light in them. Because they're unequally yoked. You've seen the difference there. And so that's what Paul is correcting here. We don't know the whole backstory, but there was a lot of opportunity for the Corinthians to hang out with people that would cause debauchery and shape their worldview. Um, and uh, unfortunately, we also have to take this as an admonition That the church is called to shape culture, not to be shaped by culture. It tells us in Isaiah 5, I love this. um, There are value systems from the Bible. There are ten commandments. They're not called ten suggestions. They're called ten commandments for a reason. There is right and wrong, and there is good and evil even though the postmodern culture would say there are no absolutes, by them saying there's no absolutes, they're making an absolute statement, so they're contradicting themselves. It's impossible to say there's no absolutes because you just lied. You said there are no absolutes. You're being absolute, and you're saying there's no absolutes. Hello? So Isaiah 5, it says... Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who exchange darkness for light and light for darkness, who exchange bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. So, essentially, this passage was written to a church, not just individuals. It is possible for a church to surrender their values and conform to the world so that they won't be persecuted or so they'll be liked or so they could build a larger church but you know what has happened historically in the last 50 years all the churches that have acquiesced to culture are shrinking so fast that there are some denominations that will not exist in the next century look at the Episcopal church look at the liberal Methodist church Look at the, uh, I mean, there's so many we could go into. They are not distinct from the world. People are thinking, why bother going to church, right? They don't believe that the Bible is inspired. It's just another artifact equal to other literary genres and books. And they'll put the Bible on the same level as anthropology, sociology, political philosophy, uh, critical thinking, etc. And so this is just one of many genres in which to shape your worldview. view. And because of that, it's lost its authority in these places. The Bible is the lens in which to view every other science. It is not equal to them, and it is not to be shaped by them. But... I call myself at times a cultural anthropologist. We have to learn to take scripture and artfully apply it to our context. That's different. We don't treat everybody the same. We don't speak religious language in contexts that people don't understand. We have to take the Bible and what we would call contextualize it, bring it to life in The context or in the community or in the setting that we're in today that's different doesn't mean we're succumbing to culture it means that we're speaking to it how many know the difference we don't want the bible to be uh how would i put it drowned by the voices of people who don't obey or know god but we want the Bible to be our primary voice in which to interpret all other voices so that we could be his voice to the people we minister to. And so as we end this section, and we're going into 2 Corinthians chapter 7 next week, we want to invite you all to co-labor with Christ. You know, in one sense, every human is called to co-labor with God. Even those who don't know God, because everyone is made in God's image. In that sense, whether they know it or not, they're working for God when they're helping the poor. When they're working as an EMT or as a doctor or nurse or a psychologist or a teacher, and they're helping, they're, in some ways, God's common grace, they're, kind of like representing his love, giving them a little taste of order or they'd be chaos in the world. So God hotwired everybody, whether they obey him or not is not the point, but there is a certain amount of administrators in the world or the world be chaos. A certain amount of visionaries, a certain amount of entrepreneurs, a certain amount of philosophers, a certain amount of caretakers, etc. You go on and on and on. Whether they know the Lord or not, that's not an accident. That's how God wired the human race but especially Christians we should intentionally try to represent him and co-labor with him be his ambassador understand that the life we live is being watched by others that we are kingdom people representing a kingdom that is more important than just our own life And we'd love to see all of you volunteer to do that. Today, we do volunteer interest at the end of the service. But not just in church, but what we do outside of church. Let's be his representative. Let's be his voice. Let's be his hands, his heart. Let's show the love of God. Let's stop categorizing people. Let's start humanizing them. I don't want CNN. I don't want ABC, I don't want Fox News, I don't want um, Apple News or Yahoo. I don't want news outlets to shape and categorize and put people into certain boxes. I want to look at every person as an individual, whether they be a Muslim, whether they be a Buddhist, whether they be Roman Catholic, whether they be no religion at all, maybe agnostic, maybe atheist. I don't want to say, okay, you're an atheist. This is what I think of you. No. Where am I getting that? Everybody has their own story. Why did they arrive at that? It's so different. It's diverse. Everybody arrives at their conclusions for different reasons. So if you don't humanize them, you're going to lose them. Love everybody. At least give it to them that they're made in the image of God. Whether you agree with their lifestyle or not, they're made in the image of God. Start with that as your starting point when it comes to conversations and relationships. And if you can't start with that, giving them dignity and respect, how can we be a bridge and share the love of God to others? Does this make sense? Let's all stand as we get ready for the worship team to come up. Thank you, Lord. How many want to be a co-laborer with Christ? Let me see your hands. You want to represent him in this world. Father, we thank you. What a privilege. Oh, God, what a privilege. We don't want to receive your grace in vain. Lord, use us. Someone say to God, whether loud or soft, use me, Lord. Help me represent you. Thank you that you've forgiven my sins. Thank you that you love me with an everlasting love. Today, wherever you are, whether it's live stream or whether it's in person, if there's somebody here Which I need prayer maybe you want to recommit your life to Christ maybe you just need prayer for challenges you're going through whatever it is if you want prayer you could come up if you want and we could pray for you here some of us who part of our prayer team could, could pray for you and uh but I'm going to pray for everybody, whether you come up or not. Father, we just thank you that you are here. Oh, Lord, we sense your presence. You are here, you are walking amongst us. We just are blown away that you would walk with us. Father, we just pray that you would help. Every person, understand the depth of your love, understand the power of your love, understand who you are and what you did on the cross. Father, we pray for those who don't know you. We thank you, God, that you said very clearly in your word that if we admit with our mouth, we confess with our mouth that Jesus is our Lord. We turn our heart to Jesus as Lord. And at the same time, admitting Jesus is Lord, but believe in our heart that God rose him from the dead, that he didn't just die as a martyr or a good person, but he died as the son of God and he's alive. That's the proof. They will be saved. They will enter the, into that kingdom, into that relationship. So if there's anybody here, whether it's live stream or here, you want to receive Christ, just repeat this prayer after me. And if you really mean it and believe it, Christ will come in. And then we would ask you to talk to one of us. Because you won't make it on your own. You need the church. You need us to help you, walk with you. So we'll help you, give you something to read. And maybe if you want to get in a small group or first principles. But let's pray this prayer. Live stream, join us. If you're here, join us. Say, Heavenly Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. Father, we thank you that Jesus is my Savior. Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. Come in my life. I believe that you rose from the dead. And because of that, you could come inside. Forgive my sins. In Jesus' name father we pray for those who prayed that prayer that you would strengthen them and fill them with your power and your love fill them with your grace help them oh god and lord we thank you that this is the day of the lord's favor how many could shout rejoice this is the day of the lord's favor praise god amen we pray that you were blessed by this word For more information about our church, please visit our website at resurrectionchurchofny.com or give us a call at 718-436-0242. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at reschurchnyc. Take care and God bless.